0: You're listening to the City Lights podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. 18, guys. 18 houses is how many uh, I've lived in. Um, my mom and dad split when I was eight, and so that probably does account for some of the uh, multiplication of residences there. I uh, was born in Hong Kong, so I used to tell people like I was a baby in Hong Kong. And that counts for uh, at least one of the houses, I think. Um, maybe there was two. Could have been 19. I uh, I'd spent my kid years in New York, upstate New York, Albany. So not like you know Manhattan or something cool like that. Upstate New York, where the snow is extra gray and it's extra cold. And uh, I think I counted uh, four houses in New York. I spent my teen years in Indiana. There was about five years there of living in uh, uh, apartments, and then ultimately. Um, a uh, an awesome house uh, with my mom in my teenage years that have has lots of good memories and then finally in South Carolina I've lived in seven different houses which is just crazy or apartments one of those apartments was just because we had too many cucarachas in the uh, first apartment so we uh, moved to the second second one so that was uh, uh, just across the hall so I don't know if that counts or not each of those houses those homes have um, indelible memories in uh, in my mind that are just part of me I'll never forget. Uh, the house on Belvedere, the Yellow House in Albany, New York. Uh, my mom was a single mom, and um, she never wanted to let me out of her sight. So she uh, put two mattresses downstairs in the washing next to the washing and dryer, washing machine and dryer, that I could like jump on while my mom was doing laundry downstairs in the basement. And I remember distinctly uh, pretending to be the fox from Robin Hood, uh, from the '70s version of Robin Hood, down there jumping on the on the mattress, the one bed that I could jump on. I remember when I was 16 living on uh, Swanson Drive. That was the, uh, the fateful street that Kyra lived, a couple houses down the road on, and uh, met the dear Cotellas. Um, and, uh, and, and we had like, kind of like a, a, a ranch-style house. It's like one-level house uh, that you could actually climb up um, the side of and get on the roof because the roof was pretty flat, and we would just party it up up there, just have a great time playing Dave Matthews songs and hanging out with Kyra on the top of the roof. I remember um, my first house uh, we bought during, uh, during the housing crisis in 2008 um, on Dunwoody Drive here in Simpsonville, or Five Forks, and uh, it was like a small little house with, a, with an overlooking um, little loft area up, up at the top, and it had a fun stone, stone fireplace that I liked a lot, and I definitely learned how to do yard work there. That was my first house, and um, the Lord wanted to set the bell curve high because uh, there's a lot of trees, a lot of uh, raking and all that kind of thing. And, and a great story that happened one time, I used to go run around the neighborhood, lots of, lots of hills in the Dunwoody Oaks. And, uh, and uh, one time I was running around the neighborhood and it was July and, and so it was just super hot. So I um, had my very unathletic, I had my shirt off at, at the house just trying to like cool down for a minute, had my unathletic mode on with my shirt off. And I looked down the street, and I thought to myself, that couldn't be what I think that it is. That couldn't be a Google van. And sure enough, uh, coming down the street was a Google van with about 25 cameras. And for the sake of posterity and on on into future, uh, if you go onto 300 Dunwoody Oaks Drive and you zoom in, uh, last I checked, I do have a picture of it if you ever want to see. There's a picture of me, shirtless, being confused and dazed, looking at the Google car, driving past me. So, um, yeah, yeah. there's a sad moment uh, when you pack up your things, and the house is empty, and, um, and the kids are in the U-Haul, and you're ready to close the door on the last chapter and move on to the next, and everything echoes in the house the way it never did because the furniture's out, and you just sort of start to feel so sad about the house that you lived in. Um, I, I, from now on, I always take my little phone around now that we have these cameras attached to us, and I just, I'll walk through the things and just talk to myself 10 years later about the different memories. You know, this is where we used to put Leo to bed, and this is how he had took Alec home, uh, my third child, uh, from the hospital. And, 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 you know, it's like all these rushing emotions, I think, when you see an empty house of all the things that took place in that house. That when you say goodbye to the house, you're not just saying goodbye to the house, you're saying goodbye to the home that was in that house, the life that was lived. So a reflection question to match the trivia question earlier. When you think about all the houses that you've been in and out of, um, what, what is it Uh, that you would hang your hat on to say, what makes a house a home? What is it that actually makes the four corners, the four walls, and the roof um, equate to you emotionally, at least, or or spiritually, as a a home? What makes a house a home? Uh, Is it um, maybe for you the cooking? I remember how good that was, boy, coming home from college, even though eating that ramen noodle MSG, and mom cooked you a dinner, and it just felt like home. And you just realize like that Sparrow's pizza, first of all, wasn't really Sparrow's pizza down in the right food court uh, in the first place, Um, but it certainly wasn't mom's cooking. Sometimes those smells when you get home and you can eat that cooking, it can can feel like you're you're coming home or, um, you know, is it the furniture? You've been to the new house and you've got the boxes and you ordered the pizza and you sat down in that stupid box and there's nothing on the walls and there's nothing on, you know, nothing to sit on other than boxes, and you just think to yourself all the work that you have to do to get everything set up. I mean, are you home yet, though, if the furniture's not there? Or some, some people might say it's the people, you know? It's, it's the heart where the home is. Um, is that true if you're driving down the road in a van in the middle of Wyoming with your family? Is that home if you don't have a house? Jesus has this really funny saying. Um, it always sticks out to me that Jesus said that he didn't have a home. Remember, he said that, that foxes... Um, their natural habitats are these holes. And foxes, even they have holes, says Jesus. You know. And birds, if you want to go figure out where birds live, you go look in nests. And Jesus says, well, birds have nests. Uh, but he says that me, the son of man, the title that he gives himself, the son of man, he says, I have no place to lay my head. And, uh, and he kind of clarifies that at the last um, dinner, the last upper room moment that he has with his disciples, that he, uh, that he shares with his disciples that the reason why he says he doesn't have a home here on earth is not because he's homeless. It's because his home is the Father. And uh, so, so he, he peels back the curtain and, and lets them in on his heart at this last little meal and tells them not only does he have a home in the Father, but they have a home in the Father as well. And that Jesus, um, in, his, in his resurrection and his, 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 his raising and his ascending to sit at the right hand of the Father was preparing a place for us This is what it says in John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he said to those disciples, as uh, surely they were going to lose a major part of their home in walking with Jesus, at least. He says, you believe in God, always have, but now I want you to believe in me. That if you've seen me, that you've seen the Father, and that my word is as good as his. In verse 2, the Father's house that I'm going ahead of you for, it's got a lot of rooms, it's got your, your name on the door. It's got the furniture that is, that is set that hosts you, that hosts community, that hosts family. And this house is being prepared for you. And it's getting ready. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, won't I come back for you? Why would I go and make a house if I didn't want somebody to live in the house? Why would I make a room for you if I didn't want you to live in the room? Why would I make a table for you and set it for you if I didn't want you to feast at the table? If I go ahead and make a place for you, I'm coming back for you. So you'll be with me in the house. That's what makes the house a home, right? It's being with Jesus. And also, you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. It's funny when you see people in their 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, Don't you sense that homesickness that people have for the Lord when they get to older ages? I mean, think about that, like the restaurants that you grew up with, the friends, the parents, the family, those things that they built, you know, or they had for a temporary tent or temporary dwelling, they're all gone. You can tell, like when you see people walking with the Lord hand in hand for years and years and years, they can say it and mean it. This place is not my home. I've moved in and out of enough houses to know, man, this place is not my home. I've had a lot of great places to live and a lot of great neighbors and a lot of great kids and a lot of great cousins and a lot of great brothers and sisters, but this place is not my home. Jesus, Jesus is my home. So uh, we've been working through the book of Acts and, um, and we've used the, the circle up there on the screen to help um, create structure really for the, the whole work of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. is all Organized around the three different seasons or phases of the gospel making its way to the ends of the earth. The gospel starts in this place that's 100% Jewish. And that was according to prophecy that first the gospel is going to come, but not stay in Jerusalem, where uh, the covenant that Yahweh made with Abraham so long ago was going to come true for those that would accept it and receive the promise in Jesus. But for those that would reject it, the gospel would move on to the outer areas, to the places that were not 100% Jewish, but they were mixed. And there were um, 50% Samarian, 50% Jewish people um, that the gospel would make its way next to Judea and Samaria. And then finally to the 0% Jewish area, to the ends of the earth. And uh, so what you see on that circle and what you see through this book is a church that's in transition. You see the gospel making its way to the ends, not through revolution, but through evolution. A, a, um, a phased approach of, of gradual increase towards unfamiliarity, towards um, unfriendliness, and towards uncertainty, towards the unknown. And each one of these rings of the circle, the, go- the, the, the disciples that are bringing this gospel are being tested. And what they're being tested on is, is the statement that I'll put up there on the screen, is, is this question... Is Jesus enough for you? As you make your way deeper and deeper into the interior of the spaces to share the gospel, into the unfamiliar and the unfriendly and the uncertain, is Jesus minus your culture? Is Jesus minus the law, minus the customs, minus your friends, minus your diet, minus your comfort, minus your stability? Is Jesus plus nothing really everything for you? And so we're going to meet a guy named Cornelius today. I've been coming up with cute little nicknames, as you guys know from the Bible characters in the book of Acts. So, first you had, you know, Eunice the Eugene, or U- Eugene the, the Eunuch, and you had Anxious Ananias, and now you got uh, Captain Cornelius. I wanted to call him Colonel because that's a funner, you know, military name, but Captain uh, of, of a U.S. military rank would be over about 100 people, and that's what a centurion was. He's over about 100 people, and so I'm just going to call him Captain Corny. Everybody say, it's corn. It's a big lump of knobs. Uh, <clears throat> it's corn, yeah. So, so Captain Cornelius is, is a new test for these disciples because he's a foreign enemy. The eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, um, was a friendly foreigner. You know, like when foreigners are cute, like everybody likes a cute foreigner. They got a cute accent. You know, they got a cute tan. And, um, they, they talk different and think different. But, um, but what gets ugly is when foreigners aren't cute when they're enemies, when they come from a country that doesn't look like you and they're antagonistic to you. We confronted Saul and we saw Saul's transformation. Saul was an enemy, but he was a familiar enemy. He was that guy down the street that struggled with the same sins that you did and he looked the same way as you did and he he came from the same place. And so it's one thing to have an enemy, but if it's a familiar enemy, that's another thing. But Corny Cornelius here is different in those two categories in the sense that he is a foreign enemy. He's a foreign unfriendly enemy. And in this transition... God sets up this little e-harmony rendezvous date, this this little encounter between uh, Peter, the apostle Peter, and this guy, Cornelius, to to meet at his house. Through a trance that Peter gets and a dream that Cornelius gets, they find themselves at Cornelius' house, two enemies coming together at the table. And out of this, not only does Peter go to the house... But Cornelius, by the end of this chapter, becomes baptized. And Peter stays in the house for several days, which is really, really against Jewish custom. It challenged the culture and the customs of Peter's heritage. And that by the end of this day, by the end of this chapter, enemies are not only friends, but friends are made into family because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All of that to say that for Peter and for the rest of his comrades, for the church is that what Peter is finding out as he's making his way from the center of the circle to the edges of the circle is that in leaving his home, he's not actually losing home. That by by obeying the word of the Lord to go to the house of his foreign enemy, to meet with him at the table and see an enemy enemy become family, to see him baptized and then stay Staying being a place of comfort and fellowship that would never have happened outside the Jewish circle, what Peter is realizing, the disciples are realizing as well, is that by leaving their home, they're not losing their home. They're actually coming home. They're actually finding home in the Spirit for the very first time. So, as we've been reflecting through this little 8 through 11 chapter, this little middle of the sandwich between the ends in Jerusalem, and we've considered what it means to be a church in transition that churches on the go need to say goodbye. Gospel means goodbye. That it means leaving something to go somewhere else. As we are in transition, as we are always in transition as people, but let alone the church, following Jesus to leave where we are going, to go where he is, we are never losing home but finding it. We are never losing home but coming home. If you're in a place where you're transitioning you know, in school and last year you were in high school and this year you're headed to college or last year you were in a gap year and this year you're headed to your job or anything else. As you're, as you're leaving, what the gospel would be telling us is if we're following Jesus, we're actually never leaving home or losing it. We're finding home in that. That there are new doors and new opportunities and Jesus never leads people away from home. He's always leading them towards it. If you're dealing with a loss today, the loss of a loved one or the loss of a relationship that's just not the same anymore, or you know in your heart of hearts that um, that the people around you, uh, as you look more and more intently at the face of Jesus, don't look like Jesus. And by you spending time with them concurrently makes it harder for you to look like Jesus. And Jesus calling you to leave that group of friends that that leaving of friends is not losing home, it's actually finding it. That the unknown is actually more home than the known. That even as, as ages go on, right, and years go on, and as you're looking at yourself in the mirror, not getting younger, you are getting older, that as you leave one age and one era of, of, your, of your life, of your family, of your kid's life, you are not losing home. You are learning to find it in Jesus. Because what happens every time in the transition is the things that we cling onto, right for our safety and security. The things that we cling onto, that we clutch onto, are shaken out of our hands. Transition forces this upon us because we are people of comfort, creatures of the known. That transitions will bring us in clutching the things that we need to let go of so that we can come out of it clinging to Jesus. That he is stripping things away even in this moment, I think, in our lives, that he strips things away so that we can have space for Jesus. If we were all to instantly, all like, unanimously move to, to Africa tomorrow, We would have a lot of space in our life. You would have a lot of support that you wouldn't have. You wouldn't have your mom, your dad, your comforts. You'd have a lot of space that would be instantly created in your life. And it would be a powerful thing because in the space is where we find an opportunity, right, for Jesus to fill it. We wouldn't be able to depend on these friends. We'd have to go make new friends. We'd have to go see where the gospel would leave us. We we wouldn't be able to rely on our own language. We'd have to learn new language and new culture. Our eyes and ears would have to be open to the people that are across from us and around us so that we would have space to cling to Jesus in that moment. We would come out of that thing certainly changed. We couldn't leave it unchanged if we were to move to a new space like that. So this is the way um, that the story goes uh, for Peter, the preacher, and Captain Cornelius. So uh, verse 1 says that Caesarea, which was an Israeli kind of beachy town, a lowland that was close to the shore, there was a man named Cornelius. Everybody say, it's corn. A centurion, a leader of a hundred in what was known as the Italian regiment. Verse two says, he and his family, they were devout and God-fearing and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Scripture says, moral of the story is, you're never showing up where God is not. We're never bringing the gospel. We're just joining where he already is. We're finding that he's not only with us, but he's already ahead of us. He's gone before us. And he's prepared the soil of the harvest. So verse three, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision and he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Verse four, Cornelius stared at him in fear and says, what is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel says, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send me to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants, a devout soldier who was uh, one with one of his attendants, and verse 8 says, he told them everything that it had happened and sent them to Joppa. So from the beginning to the end of this book of Acts, you're going to notice a strong agenda that there isn't a, a randomness of the city that it starts into the city that it ends, that it begins in the Jewish place, 100% Jewish place, and ends in the ends of the earth place, in the 0% Jewish place. But the end of this book is very distinctly aimed at the capital city of all of the Gentile world, which is Rome. That the story begins in the capital city of the Jewish world and ends in the capital city of the Gentile world, which is Rome. All of that to say that that this man, Cornelius, I remember um, distinctly going to Hong Kong in the summers and seeing um, uh, some of the, um, the British military at the, uh, at the airports as I was coming in. So 1997 was the, was the switch over time. Uh, Hong Kong was a colony of, of Britain. And, and, and seeing something so powerful yet so foreign uh, right there in the airport, it was like confronting global politics right there in the middle of a Tuesday afternoon as you landed your plane. These, these Roman soldiers that were, were sent out there to guard this place, they represented this entire other foreign and empire and oppressive world as they kept guard and watched around you know, uh, Caesarea and many other towns uh, of the Jewish um, nation. And, uh, and, this, and, and here we run into this guy, Cornelius, and um, he does not act as, as, the, as the other Romans do. As it says in verse um, 2, it says, he and his family were devout, they were God-fearing, And instead of exporting the the kingdom of Rome, they were importing personally the kingdom of God through the Jews. It says he gave generously to those who were in need and and he prayed to God regularly. And so what is it that this Bible is doing to us and sending the message and starting at a place that's the capital city of Israel to go right to the heart, the very heart of the capital city of the Gentile world, which is Rome, except to say that the gospel is not just for the poor um, as a crutch but the gospel is a rescue for the rich. That The gospel begins in this place of Jerusalem, but it's not stopping there. It is not only for the poor Samaritan, it is for the rich Roman too, and everyone in between. The gospel is meeting the poor, the have-nots, and the rich, the haves. And notice what it is that the gospel does to this rich and powerful captain, a young guy who surely has a lot of promotion if he's down here by the beach just hanging out, um, watching uh, out for the Roman Empire there on the, on the outpost there of Caesarea, is, um, is, that, is that generosity, is that, is that the gospel um, affects and infects uh, the way that uh, Cornelius thinks and lives, and the impact of the gospel on the rich and powerful is to create generosity. It says that he prays and gives to the poor. I don't know what it is about me, I'm, I'm not a big crier, but I cry at generosity. I watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas, and it gets me every time. I just tell myself when I start this up, oh, this is the year. This is so cheesy and corny. I'm way involved now. I'm never gonna cry at the end of this thing when old Bernie or whatever it is gives the extra checks, the, the money to um, the George Bailey. And uh, what is it about that? I remember um, as, as a younger um, husband, um, I used to have these stupid gray black pants that I used to wear to a loose Chinese bistro to be a waiter, and I'd come home smelling like, foo young and make my wife throw up, you know, wearing these like sucker pants. I used to call them the sucker pants, these stupid sucker pants. They were like gray and just looked lame and, um, and, uh, and And gosh, it was just like we would get in fights over who drank the last two ounces of the Pepsi. Did you drink the last Pepsi? You really did that. You really drank the last Pepsi. There wasn't ever enough to go around. We had these GNC gift cards this lady gave me. I had my second job at Starbucks, because I was getting the health insurance through Starbucks, and she gave me a bunch of GNC smoothie cards, and those were our dates. I mean, that was the whole date. I would go get the smoothie cards and take my wife to GNC, and uh, every now and again, I don't know if you have ever been in a situation like that with the sucker pants and the GNC cards and, um, and, the, and the almost fistfights over who drank the last bit of the Pepsi out of the fridge, that somebody would just give you a, a check some some point, like maybe it was to support you for a mission trip, or maybe it was they give you a check at Christmas, and you would just cry. It was for $100, and he would just weep over that generosity. And um, what are those tears about? Like, are they really about, are they really about the excitement, you know, the over-rejoicing over of being able to buy two Pepsis instead of one or whatever? Is it really about, you know, the substance and the materials that the, that the money can buy? I don't think so. I think that when we're poor and when we receive generosity, the thing about being poor and receiving generosity is that it causes our soul to be seen. It, it, it rises up to this place that God could even hear our spirit cry that says like, you know, for a minute there, I didn't think you were listening. I didn't think that you saw me. And if it was $75, $100, like it, it makes me feel seen. And it does even more than that, like more than even my thought process, but it, it, it goes deep into this place in my heart. You know, there's these two kingdoms out there. It's like, there's this like, wealth kingdom, and there's this like, welfare kingdom. And it's like these two lies about money, that money is either earned or it's owed, but it's certainly not a gift. That money's to be earned or to be owned, but it's not to be given. And there's something, something so violently weaponizing about generosity. This is a Jim Carrey quote that says, like, I wish everybody had a chance to be rich and famous to realize that it solves nothing. There's something so powerful that happens in the heart of a rich man when the gospel hits, hits that person and transform, transforms their greed into generosity. Because as that money comes into their hands and out of their hands, what they're preaching is not only that everybody is seen, known, and loved by God, but also that none of this life is earned or owed. That all of it is a gift. Whether it's physical life or spiritual life, that God loved this world so much that he gave his son, that we might have life and life abundant in him. And that's a gift. And none of it was earned and none of it was entitled. None of it was owned. And there's something so physically and potently powerful about generosity in the hands of a rich person that discovers the kingdom of God, that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, that attacks welfare and wealth. It attacks the, the, the spirit of mammon, Jesus says, the love of money that rules our hearts, that deceives us, that takes way more than the Pepsi's out of our fridge, that takes our youth and our livelihood and our time with our kids and our moment of rest and our, and our pace, it steals so much of us. Money steals way more than it gives us when we have it. And there's something so powerful about the gospel hitting a rich Roman man and God hearing that as, as a memorial offering. And so I wonder how that hits us. You know, it's like in America, we're the top 1%. You've heard all the statistics. If you've got a refrigerator and a phone that works, you're like one of the top 1%. And maybe we would read this passage different than a poor person, than somebody that was in Africa that was reading this passage today Maybe we would think about that. What is the weapon in my hand? Because I think when it says that, that giving of money, that, you know, the generosity that uh, Cornelius practiced, that generosity is memorial. I think it's a memorial to Mammon. It says a memorial offering, like what's died? You have a memorial for something that's died. What's died? It's the love of money has died in Cornelius. The freedom to know that money is a gift, but it's not a master. And to find a rich man that can fit through the eye of a needle, and have money, but not be mastered by it, is a powerful weapon in the hands of the Lord, and can do a lot of damage—not just to the poor, but to the rich as well—to to put to death the, the spirit of mammon, to put to death the spirit of welfare and the spirit of, of wealth, to say that wealth is empty without Jesus. And so, what would it look like? The top one percent of this world, right? Even in this place, in this in, in, the, in the company of the spirit of God in the church, to actively put, pray with our money, we have an avid, we have a responsibility as wealthy people in this world, as, as gospel-believing wealthy people in this world to pray about how we can use, use our money as a weapon against idolatry for ourselves and for our neighbors. What does that look like? What does that look like? So verse nine says, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while, he was, um, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down from the earth by its four corners. So just this a little bit of interpretation, you know, a sheet is like a covenant. Uh, it's like you would take your, your bride and, and cover her with the sheet. That is a covenant symbol. And down here on the sheet in this vision that the Peter has in this trance are these different unclean animals from Le- uh, Leviticus 11 that prohibit, you know, the Jewish diet from eating these unkosher things. And so here's this sheet of covenant with all this unclean food on it. Verse 12, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And the voice says from heaven, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice says to him a second time, do not call anything impure that uh, God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there, And while Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate and go with them. And Peter went with him. So the whole crux of this story is will Peter get to Corny's house? Over the river and through the woods to Corny's house we go. Will Peter make it to the ends of the earth to go visit a foreign enemy, a guy that doesn't look like him and doesn't like him? Will God be successful? the spirit be successful in guiding Peter where he doesn't want to go and having him leave the place that he knows to go to the place that's unknown. And if you watch the kind of consecutive sets, you know, sequences of events, the success of this story is 10% action and 90% is listening. 90%, I would argue with you, if you go and look, at the uh, implicating moments there in this story, 90% has to do with, is Peter paying attention and listening to what what the father is telling him or not? So for example, it says um, in the passage that the reason why Peter is in a trance is because he's praying. Both Peter and Cornelius both need to hear God speak to them for this rendezvous to take place, and none of that happens if they're not praying avidly, both at 3 and tw- talking about 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. and 3 in the afternoon, there's these times of prayer that Peter can't hear God if he's not in prayer. Secondly, he goes into a trance and it says ahead of time that he's hungry. And let me tell you what, I've had enough times that I need to pull the car-, car over on the side of the road and stop for a Snickers bar because my blood sugar is so low. I wouldn't be sure that's the Lord talking to me or the fact that I am just, uh, just need a Snickers bar. And he has enough faith to believe that even though he's hungry, that when God is speaking, that God is speaking. That God is using all sorts of things, spiritual and and physical, to get, get across his message to Peter. Thirdly, he doesn't just pray and get into a trance. It says the scriptures say for the next couple of days, he has no interpretation, so he's thinking about that trance. That prayer and listening to God is not just this Ouija board where God whispers this thing and I know exactly what it means all of a sudden, that he has to sit there and carry the word of the Lord with him everywhere he goes to think on it enough and wait for God to interpret what he saw. Furthermore, other than the fact that he knows he's supposed to go someplace and leave where he is to go where he's going, he doesn't know what he's gonna find there. So that's part of listening. It's not just the thinking about it, but it's taking steps without knowing the future. And when he goes to it, and we're going to read later to to, to the location that he's supposed to go, and he sits down and has the conversation with Cornelius, he doesn't bring the entire interpretation of the word. He just simply says, this is what I heard. I want to know what you heard. So he has to share it with somebody else. All that to say that if 90% of this story of getting Peter to Cornelius' house successfully, if 90% of it has to do with listening, it's probably a fair argument to say that 90% of discipleship is listening. And not just passive listening, active listening. Let's think what, what I see in, in this story. So I read this Malcolm Gladwell book, and it was about um, it was about cultures and and um, and and how different cultures communicate and how they listen. And there was this this airline, Korean Airlines, kept crashing all of their planes uh, into um, into different ranges and 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 mountain areas. And so they did these studies, and they would get inside the black box inside the black box. It's this little thing that's in, in, in planes that tells the last records of the communications that was going on. And um, what they discovered about the reason why Korean airline pilots uh, were being unsuccessful in landing their planes is because their communication was too passive. That there's a high level of hierarchy and honor within the Asian culture. And so there's this deference that the second captain wouldn't speak aggressively enough to the first captain that the message would get across clear. So instead of saying things like, that wing is too icy, we should watch out for it because it's probably not going to be fit to fly through this range. They'd say, I think that wing looks a little bit icy. And the message was clear, but it wasn't aggressive enough. It wasn't assertive enough. You know, secondly, there's this, um, there's this whole thing about they would come into New York City and New York City, LaGuardia or something like that has this really aggressive kind of way of, of communicating. And uh, one of the airline pilots was trying to say, oh, I'm not sure we were really low on gas. So LaGuardia just had them circling and circling until they ran out of gas and they just landed, right, and and crashed their plane, all because they didn't have an aggressive sense of speaking to what they felt like was the superior agent there, of saying, we don't have enough gas, we're going to crash, right? All of a sudden, that communication doesn't make its way across to the here, and there there was a crash. And since then, there's been lots of training that has gone on to have more assertive and proactive communication. But all that being said, that if if you put yourselves understanding from the Asian side to the American side, is that what the book is kind of saying about the Asian side is that um, uh, the Korean air captains weren't, were not better at listening, not great at talking, that and in an American culture, we're probably better at talking, but not very good at listening. Like the average TikTok, right? This is our entertainment system these days. If you don't tell me something interesting, compelling, and entertaining within seven seconds, I'm moving on. Right? Because the culture of America is the burden of communication is on the talker, not on the listener. If this is not entertaining, I am not listening. The whole essence of branding is fit as much meaning into the colors and shapes and the fonts because if it does not grab my attention, I'm not listening. Right? Reading, like are, 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 are the length of the amount of reading that we'll do, the, how long we are willing to sit down and actually sit and think about a book and read about a book, is very, very short, which is a very, you know, a disadvantage in communication of having passive communication, you know, is is bad when it comes to crashing planes, but listening is good in discipleship. 90% of listening is discipleship, and it's not passive, it's active. It's active. And so I'll I'll just share a a quick story just of what this has looked like in my life, and kind of close up the message here as, as we get to the end. But, um, we were downstairs in prayer uh, the other night. I think we uh, we do it about three or four times a semester now. We we meet up for, for prayer meeting. Tom leads that, one of our elders, and we were going around in prayer. We always pray for the nations first, and then we pray for our city in Greenville, and then we pray for the church, and we pray for one another. And I had um, I had uh, I had uh, Lisa Patterson pray for um uh, something that was going on in my family. And uh, Lisa Patterson, she prayed with me. She prayed for me through the week, and she sent me this text. Of, um, of this other of this other lady, this mutual friend that, that we have, and she texts me these two words on this text message that she had heard from the Lord um, about um, kindness and repentance. She said, "Out of Romans two, you know, the word kindness kindness means different things to different people in different times. For some people, kindness is a listening ear. For some time, some people kindness is clarity and getting to the point. Like kindness." means something different and sounds something different to everyone that you know. Kindness translates differently. And secondly, it's the same thing about repentance. That she was texting, this person uh, was texting on my, on my, on my behalf and, and saying that kindness, you know, that, or that repentance, the Lord hears repentance, that the Lord can tell the difference between somebody being sorry because they're caught and deeply sorry because they, they see their sinfulness and want to change. And only the Lord sees that. And so she sent me this message and within that exact same circumstance, the thing that we were praying for, that one of the people that was involved in that circumstance who never, ever admits wrong and apologizes, apologized for something and demonstrated a kind of repentance. And out of that, this is in this same exact circumstance, the second person, having heard that apology, said, thank you for saying that. That was very kind of you to say. And this is my point, is is that listening Listening is not this passive endeavor when it comes to talking to the Holy Spirit where God just has to wake you up in the middle of the night and just says something to you while you're not asking and seeking knocking. Listening is active. Listening is the process. If if Peter's not praying, then he doesn't come into this place of, of hunger and trance. And if he's not in the trance, then he doesn't have a chance to think about it. If he's not thinking about it, then he's not going and he's not going, he's not sharing. And so ultimately, all of this, I think, would tell us that listening is more of an active pursuit than a passive endeavor. And so if we take that all the way home, we might say it this way, that probably one of the best ways to not hear God speak to you is to close your Bible, get alone, and be in a hurry. The best way that if you want to wander through your transition season and not walk and follow Jesus is to close your Bible, get alone, don't talk to anybody else, and be in a hurry. But if you want to not wander, but walk through your season of transition with Jesus, then potentially one of the best things that we could do is open the Scriptures gather around and share and slow down enough to think and consider what God might be saying to us. That is the difference between a wandering season and a walking season is hearing the voice of the Lord because Peter doesn't get to Cornelius' house if he's not listening and listening actively. So ultimately, I'm just going to read this uh, last set of verses here as uh, Peter ultimately shares the gospel. And, um, and what you're gonna see here is that there's, there's, there's this consecutive back and forth Give and take, first Peter shares of his testimony and story, then Cornelius shares. Out of that, Jesus speaks. But you can see that as Jesus is speaking through Peter, it's not just that Cornelius is hearing the gospel, that Peter's hearing it too, almost for the first time. And I can tell you as a preacher, a lot of times that it's the things that you're preaching about are not just the things that you're preaching to people, but you're hearing it for almost for the first time for yourself, and you're you're seeing it come alive in a fresh way as you talk about it. And I think that's exactly what's happening to Peter. And then ultimately, that Cornelius has been living in this house for a long, long time. But by inviting Peter to the house and gathering in the presence of God is the way that he says it, that Cornelius finds home in his house in a new way that he never has before. And Peter is able to find in a foreigner's house home in a new way that he hasn't felt it before. And therefore, both of them leaving where they are and following where Jesus is calling them to go, find home in one another. So, this is how it goes. It says, The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. And the following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up and stand. And he says, I am only a man myself. In the process of hearing the Lord, there's no young and there's no old and there's no wise and seminary and smart and dumb. There's just believers, followers trying to hear the voice of their father. And so he enters that room not as a superior but on level ground knowing that hearing the voice of the Lord happens in circles and not in rows. And so verse 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people and he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came along without raising any objections. May I ask what you sent me for? So Peter comes in the room and he shares his part but no more. He allows for God to speak, but the spirit to interpret. And so Cornelius answers, well, three days ago, I was in my house and praying at this hour, and at three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded us. I'm gonna go ahead and skip down for the sake of time Peter shares the gospel. It's almost unanimously the same exact way as he shares to the Jewish audience as he shares to Cornelius, that Jesus came, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, that Jesus ascended, that Jesus is coming back. This is the same exact gospel that he preaches, but he says it in this way that he keeps saying it's almost like you already know this, so I'm just kind of preaching it to you and preaching it to myself because the gospel needs to be heard in moments like this because all of the God speaking is ultimately always saying the same thing that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose, that he ascended, that he's coming back. This is what God is always saying. I mean, Jesus says new things about twists and turns and lefts and right in your your life, but all of it is to amplify the single message that Jesus came to say, which is that you killed Jesus, but he raised him, that God raised him. So verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of us being water baptized. And they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they would be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. It's just funny about mission trips, right? That when we go to mission trips and we leave the place that we are to go to the place that we're going, we always get more than we left for. Isn't that funny? When you go on these mission trips, you wanted to give so much, but you couldn't outgive what you got. Then in leaving home, you actually in some way found home because you're spending uninterrupted time with, with the community that's around you the way that Jesus intends it to be. And you're actively having your eyes and ears open in a new place where all these other spaces are stripped away, all these comfort zones and distractions are stripped away, only that you can look and pursue and look and, and have attention on Jesus. And isn't it funny when your attention's on Jesus, you actually see him. And you come to this place on this week-long mission trip and by the end of it, you almost feel sad going home because you feel like it feels like you're leaving home feels like you're leaving the place that we should be living, which is the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus is our home ultimately. And sometimes it's like you got to go to Ecuador to realize that and to find it. And you're in a great place then, right? When you, when you come home and you put the passport in your, in your upper desk drawer and you remember that your house is just a house, but ultimately home is in Jesus. Home is in Jesus. And so I just have this intentional question as we close up um, this morning and I'll pray as the, as the band comes forward in a moment. But this is just my intentional question for you as you consider what it is to be home in Jesus, is where is Jesus calling you to leave and go to find home in him? He is never calling you to leave a home to lose a home. Leaving a home is always finding home and coming home in Jesus. That Jesus says he goes ahead of you to prepare a place. He would not go ahead of you to play a room that he's not calling you to go to. And there's really two paths ahead of you to make your home here or make your home there. And it's a pity and a shame, right, when, when we grow into our 70s and 80s and 90s and we find all the places that we spent trying to build our homes that were only temporary, they're only fleeting sand, and as they, as they get stripped away, we realize we're homeless. That staying without going is homelessness. It is, it is creating a future that has no home, that has no abiding in Jesus. And so I wanna encourage you in that place of, of where you're staying and where you're going, that he never causes you to lose home when you're leaving that Jesus is always there to build home with you and and home is where Jesus is. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.